Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have John Stackhouse as our guest to talk about his new book, Can I Believe? Christianity for the Hesitant. We're also going to take a look at his book, Evangelicalism, a very short introduction. John is an award-winning scholar, teacher, and public communicator, and he currently teaches religious studies at Crandall University in Eastern Canada. Well, John, we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Well, John, um, let's let's start out with this. You know, I uh, I did not know Gordon Fee really well, but he was kind enough to invite me to write the commentaries on Colossians and Philemon in the New International Commentary after F.F. Uh, F. Bruce had asked me to write Matthew, and I finally turned it in and said, I'll never finish this commentary. I was asked to do it when I was too young. So, and then uh, Gordon was kind enough, you know, to read the manuscript, and I remember him saying, Scott, I read about 100 pages right away, and I thought, I don't even need to edit this guy. So it was a great compliment for me, but um, I was sad. Uh, I was sad when I discovered that Gordon had Alzheimer's, and uh, I've known a little bit about um, that disease for him and how he's experienced it. But I know that you taught with him quite a few years at uh, at Regent, and so just wondering what you you would have to say about Gordon. Well, I first heard about Gordon through my late friend and uh, former colleague, Larry Hurtado. Larry mm. and I taught together for uh, seven years at the University of Manitoba before I went out to Regent. And uh, Larry, who, as you know, finished his career at uh, New College at the University of Edinburgh and was an eminent New Testament scholar himself, Larry looked to Gordon as a mentor. Uh, as the man in the previous generation who had somehow managed to be a Pentecostal and a scholar uh, oh, at a time wow. when those were uh, those were rare to be mentioned in the same sentence. Um, and, and in fact, it was Gordon who helped Larry connect with Eldon Epp, who was Larry's supervisor uh, in mm. textual criticism. So Larry was very much like Gordon and that he started as a textual critic and then worked his way into uh, New Testament exposition and then finally into New Testament theology and early Christian origins. And I think that um, I think that's really interesting that, that people who come from this background that emphasizes so much of the wonderful experiential and practical sides of the faith would be attracted to the really technical and intellectually rigorous demands of textual criticism yeah, uh, at yeah. the other end of the scale, cognitively, you might say, and then they become, you know, good Bible preachers and teachers. And and Gordon and Larry were both uh, excellent preachers mm -hmm. as well as uh, teachers. Uh, and sometimes in the classroom, you couldn't tell the difference uh, as they move from one mode to the other. And then, of course, Gordon uh, similarly inspired my good friend and former region colleague Rick Watts, who was his mm -hmm. protege at Gordon Connell Seminary before Rick went off then to get his PhD at Cambridge and eventually ended up teaching with us at Regent as well. Mm. And I think that if Gordon had only inspired the careers of Larry Hurtado and Rick Watts, uh, that would have been a life well spent. But of course, he's inspired dozens of similar yeah, yeah. Uh, scholars. He's encouraged uh, people like you to overcome your natural 
difficulty in writing to uh, to, to manage to publish a, a book or ten or twenty or so, and that that's that's a ministry. And uh, and Gordon, uh, I think the last thing I'd say about about Gordon is that he was the same in the faculty meeting as he was in the classroom. Um, Gordon gave us all permission to be really excited about following Jesus. Mm. And for a bunch of introverted PhD holding scholars who barely crack a grin most of the time, uh, Gordon said basically implicitly and sometimes explicitly, um, we should be pretty joyful about following the King of Kings. And in Gordon's presence, you felt a little more joyful all the time. Mm. That's beautiful. You know, um, I, I knew Larry pretty well, and uh, Larry was the first charismatic student at Trinity. And and this ties into your great work on evangelicalism, John. Larry was not accepted at Trinity. They did not want charismatics. And um, a wonderful scholar who became my colleague, but also someone I really loved, well, he's still with us, uh, is Walt Liefeld. Mm. Walt Liefeld defended Larry mm-hmm. uh, at Trinity and basically uh, came to the conclusion, for Larry's sake, that charismatics can be evangelicals. How about uh, that? Of that sort. <laughs> and uh, today, no one questions whether charismatics can be evangelicals, but at that time, they were like a different breed altogether. Mm. And so... Um, that's quite a story. And, and your, your work, I've followed your stuff on evangelicalism. I just have a cottage industry of books on my shelves. In fact, I have six feet of books on evangelicalism, and I've read most of them, and I have no, I've never hardly written on it. You know, I mean, I really have not written on it, not the way I should or, or could and probably shouldn't. Um, it's... <laughs> I'm fascinated by the topic, and your voice has been a distinct voice. So I, I'm, I'd like you to t- tell us what an evangelical is. What are the kinds of evangelicalism? And I know these are all big questions for you. So I just, um, what is evangelicalism? I'm sitting here reading right now Lisa Swartz, Lisa Weaver Swartz's new book that compares uh, Southern Seminary and Asbury Seminary on gendered evangelicalism. And it's really pretty fascinating. And I'm thinking, I remember when I first was a, alive and awakened to evangelicalism, this wasn't even a conversation at that time. People weren't talking about this. So, all right, John, I talked too much there. No, it's good. Lots of people like to hear you talk. I like to hear you talk too. And I, I <laughs> I'd rather hear you than me because I already know what I'm going to (laughs) say. I think that uh, in this little book project, Scott, um, because I'm not as young as I used to be and I'm not getting any younger, I thought this is a chance that I probably should take to say some things that um, I've been a little bit leery about saying in print, but I finally thought, no, I'm not going to get another kick at the can like this and this will be a little book that a lot of people will read just because it's a little book and because it's got a you know a decent publisher and it's in a good series. And if I have something I really think I should say about evangelicalism, this is my opportunity to say it. So I, I say a few things here that um, I haven't said quite that way before and that I don't hear everybody else saying either. 
couple of things. Um, let me say a couple of things first. I, I try to say a couple of things that evangelicalism is not as a synonym. Evangelicalism, for instance, is not synonymous with revivalism. And often it is. Uh, evangelical and revivalist are seen as the same thing. But, but revivalism, in the very nature of the case, is a kind of ebb and flow, a kind of up and down, a kind of here today, gone tomorrow, let's get it back. Evangelicalism really has nothing directly to do with ebbing and flowing. It has to do with, are you walking with Jesus today? Are you in step with the Spirit today? If you're not, then get right with God. And if you do get right with God, stay right with God. It's, it's nothing to do with ebbing and flowing and, and annual revival meetings or the occasional. I mean, life has its undulations. Life does ebb and flow, and evangelicals know that. And there's a tradition of spiritual theology and evangelicalism that helps believers with that. But the, the whole thrust of evangelicalism is constancy, is staying allied with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and walking in step with him every moment of every day, redeeming the time, as Brother Wesley always liked to say. Secondly, evangelicalism is not the same as conservatism. In fact, in this book, I, I decide to go for broke and say there's really, in my view, only three styles of Protestant Christianity. And I say evangelicalism is a style. It's a way of being a Protestant Christian. Now, I will say as a quick footnote, some people count Catholics as evangelicals in certain kinds of polling. I, I think there's some methodological problems with that, but I'll let the Catholics decide what they want to call themselves. But in the Protestant world, it seems to me you've got conservatives, you've got liberals, and you've got evangelicals. And liberals are people who, in the nature of the case, have the liberty, the freedom to interact with the Christian tradition as they see fit. If they think the Bible is illuminating and inspiring, great. If they think it isn't, then too bad. It's just early Christian literature with Hebrew backgrounds. And that's, that's the liberal theological method. When I think of conservatives, their way of being Christian is to preserve the faith once delivered to the saints intact. In fact, probably freeze it if you can, and then thaw it out in subsequent generations so that it stays exactly the way it was in grandma and grandpa's day, and the instinct is to keep things the same. That's where I think fundamentalism is. That's where I think Missouri Synod Lutheranism is, or prayer book Anglicanism, or really strict Reformed theology, and so on. So this would be conservative. Evangelicals occupy this middle position, and middle doesn't always mean better, but in this case, I happen to think it does, because that's where I am myself. But evangelicalism is true to what it sees to be the traditional core of the Christian confession. In that sense, evangelicals unselfconsciously say that we practice basic Christianity or even mere Christianity. But evangelicals also are quite willing to recognize as kin people who disagree with them on second order and third order issues, issues that traditionally have divided Christians. What do you think of the Lord's Supper? What do you think about bishops? What do you think about baptism? Christians have traditionally divided over those things. Evangelicals recognize those denominational distinctions, but they're also willing to work together on an evangelistic mission 
or on a Bible school or on a relief and development agency. So there is an ecumenical impulse in evangelicalism that says, yeah, we recognize you as kin. We'll work with you on those things, even though we will then argue with you about those second, third order things. But evangelicalism is also very pragmatic and willing to innovate. Evangelicals are willing to try different kinds of churches and different kinds of architectures and different kinds of technologies and different kinds of methods. And they always have been right back to the 18th century. And I trace evangelicalism back to the transatlantic revivals and renewal movements in Britain and in North America, stemming from the continental movements of pietism and the earlier Puritan movements, so that evangelicalism is this movement to come in for a landing here, is a, is a movement of constant uh, renewal and of reform. The renewal impulse really comes from the pietist background to try to bring renewal to a kind of stodgy, boring, if orthodox, Lutheran church. The Puritans is the other heritage, and they want to not only reform the Church of England, they want to reform England. They want everything to change. And evangelicals get that reform impulse, particularly from their, their Puritan uh, ancestors. And so that combination of renewal and reform strikes me as um, the, 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 the center of the flow of evangelicalism as a style or as a way of being Christian to this day. In which case, I was having a friendly argument this week with a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary who was saying that his seminary is what he would call conservative evangelical. And I would say that's a contradiction in terms. I would say that you're conservative and you're fundamentalist, but I don't <laughs> think you're evangelical. And in the way I define the terms, that's, that's how I think uh, things should be properly divided. Okay, John, what did this Southern Baptist, Southern Seminary professor say? Well, he's a very gentle spirit, and he teaches church history, so he knows his own traditions quite well. But I, as I say, I think that here I stand with uh, George Marsden and, and, and the really great historians of fundamentalism to say that fundamentalism is, is usually basically orthodox in its doctrine and usually orthoprax in its behavior and, and, and orthopath in many of its sentiments, but it's intensely protective of the tradition and it's militant to the point of separatism with anybody who doesn't agree. So fundamentalism is, is a kind of conservatism. Now, fundamentalism is a bit interesting because it's not as conservative as, as I say, the Missouri Synod Lutherans, the prayer book Anglicans, where kind of everything is kept. A fundamentalists can be quite innovative too when it comes to technology, when it comes to their fairly selective retrieval of the past. But what they do believe, by God, they really believe. And when it comes to saying that uh, we hold to the fundamentals of faith and practice, in fundamentalism, everything's a matter of faith and practice. Everything is properly policed and maintained. Uh, they don't tend to make distinctions between first, second, and third order convictions the way right. evangelicals do. So I think we really have a different flavor, a different style, as I say, a different way of being Christian. So would you do you think then that uh, there is such a thing as a conservative and something else that is fundamentalist? Well, I think there are conservatives who aren't fundamentalists. There are conservatives yeah. who aren't militant. They aren't particularly separatistic. They tend to be quietly happy in their enclaves. 
like conservative Lutherans or Dutch Reformed or Anglicans. What about what about in in our uh, in our world, John? So let's leave the Lutherans and the Presbyterians alone. In our you and my our evangelical world, who would you say is conservative, but not a fundamentalist? Who, what's a good name for them? Oh, it's a good I name. I mean, a, a person, a person. Who, oh. Who's a person? Well, um, I would say, for instance, somebody um, whose theology is, uh, well, I would say Fritz J.I. Packer is, is yeah, probably Packer. a conservative. He's not a fundamentalist. Um, I taught with Jim uh, for years at Regent. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little careful about that because I, I actually think Jim would be an evangelical by my definition. I don't think that Jim was so conservative that he wouldn't think new thoughts, for instance, as he did about Roman Catholicism, um, as he, I think, slowly did mm-hmm. about the charismatic movement and so on. Um, so I, I would say that it's interesting that the, the conservatives, per se, that aren't fundamentalists do tend to show up in these other enclaves, like in traditional Presbyterianism and traditional yeah. Lutheranism and so on, or even, even certain Baptist circles. Um, but uh, I don't tend to read folks like that. I mean, maybe somebody like, um, like uh, uh, Burkhoff, not Louis Burkhoff, but the, the, the other one that tends to be assigned uh, in the olden days, um, a, a conservative Dutch reform, somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. Hendrikus. Yeah, Hendrikus, yeah. No, I'm uh, sorry. I, I did mean Lewis. So Hendrikus would be yeah. the more progressive one. Lewis would be yeah, the, uh, yeah. the conservative one. Yeah. Well, th- this is a very interesting uh, phenomenon because as I, I grew up in American fundamentalism, at least that's what we called ourselves, conservative Baptists of America. Well, then you were because nobody calls themselves fundamentalists who aren't fundamentalists. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to a fundamentalist Bible uh, Christian college, Grand Rapids Baptist. Oh yeah, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, you're ticking and, the boxes. Uh, yeah. You know the the person who woke me up was Francis Schaeffer, mm. and I think we're similar ages. That Francis Schaeffer's books just kind of came on like bombs at the time. I mean, it was just one after another. And I was reading every one of them as they were coming out. And he was basically saying evangelicalism, whatever you want to call it, fundamentalism is does not fit modern culture. It doesn't have an adequate historiography. It doesn't have, et cetera. And he had an apologetic. And it, and it just made me, for the first time in my life, critical of the church. And I began to see the problems with fundamentalism. And I went to seminary, John. Basically, not knowing what I did believe, but I was pretty certain of what I didn't believe. Mm. Well, I think Francis Schaeffer is an interesting case because he was a fundamentalist Presbyterian pastor in uh, yeah. the northeastern U.S. in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, yeah. which yeah. which is to Presbyterianism very much like your Baptist denomination yeah. would have been to to American Baptist conventions, and then in obeying the call of God with his wife to go to Switzerland mm-hmm. and found Labrie, he stepped into a much wider world and yeah. helped a lot of the rest of us step into that much wider world. And I'll always be grateful for Francis Schaeffer. We really haven't seen the like of someone like him uh, in, our, in the next generation who turned on so many of us to the idea that we could be Christians and cultured too and have yeah. something interesting to say to culture, not merely cave into it. Um, yeah. And then I, I met him um, at the end of his life when, sadly, there was a kind of regression 
into a kind of yeah. fighting fundamentalism and yeah, culture yeah. warrior status that he hadn't before. But in, in his heyday, he was quite remarkable and quite a breath of fresh air. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, that's the way I experienced him. Uh, I experienced John Stott the same way. I felt John Stott wanted us to engage with culture. He got into battles with Billy Graham, um, mostly peaceful, but those two people had big enough egos to fight their and big enough audiences that they could fight the way they wanted to and get by with it. But um, that that was a real, those two, you know, John Stott, for me, when I was in college, uh, these were the ways I got in trouble. Thinking the thoughts of Francis Schaeffer in the wrong context, believing that John Stott was, you know, a major thinker for evangelicalism and reading the RSV. <laughs> well, it's amazing actually that, that you actually are, are here to talk to us today, Scott, given um, how, how they, I mean, they, 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 they take people out of Grand Rapids seminary and drop them into a nearest ice fishing hole for saying stuff like that. So <laughs> I'm glad you made it. I mean, John Stott is, is a kind of, is a wonderful example because he's, he's really a kind of classic 20th century evangelical, right? He comes from an Anglican yeah. background, has a first rate education, a double firsts at Cambridge, um, pastors faithfully a local church you know all souls lying in place in london that has this international ministry as as a bible teacher and missioner uh, apologist in some ways um, and really does encourage evangelicals again to step into a wider space and to see each other as kin um, famously of course resisting martin lloyd jones famous call mm -hmm. of the Kiel Conference in the 1960s to, to come out from the pluralistic uh, denominations and be separate uh, in a yep, kind yep. of proto-fundamentalism um, and start withstanding him to his face. And I think that was, a, that was a very key moment, I think, for not only British evangelicalism, oh, yeah. but, but internationally as well because of Stott's stature. And he, his, his willingness at Lausanne in 1974 to listen to the not always polite voices from Latin America, uh, Rene yeah. Dia and Samuel Escobar, um, uh, these, these guys saying, you know, you, you white guys got to get with it. You've lost part of the gospel here in your refusal mm -hmm. to, to practice an integral evangelism that involves social reform as well as renewal. Um, you know, Stadi was, was one of the key people to, to keep oh, yeah. in the fold and to rebuke his, Anglophone um, uh, compatriots. Um, yeah. So, so he, yeah, he was quite a statesman and and quite a hero. Mm -hmm. I think. You know, um, I've heard people say in the United States there was a split. There are the Statians and there were the Martin Lloyd Jonesians, mm -hmm. and Packer seemed to have been involved in that discussion, and you probably know about that. But I've often wondered where Tim Keller fits. In that, you know, because um, I taught at Trinity for, for 12 years, for a dozen years, and there were p major voices there who did not think John Stott, they thought he was just a little too slippery. Um, they were not convinced of the guy, but they were more convinced of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so they, you know, and you know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So... 
I'm I'm wondering where you would place Tim Keller on this on this map that we're talking because I I respect Tim Keller. I, mm -hmm. I find a lot of interesting things about him. Well, I've never met uh, Brother Keller. I've read uh, a number of things that he's written. Um, one of my sons, uh, for a while, enjoyed uh, worshiping at one of their campuses um, in New York City. I've got a lot of respect for Tim Keller. I remain puzzled, I confess, uh, by his um, refusal to see what, to me, is the luminously strong argument for the ordination of women and the full practice of women in the church. Um, I can only assume that no one's given him one of my books yet, and he hasn't yet <laughs> had the light shine, because to me, the arguments are just so compelling. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent about his involvement with the Gospel Coalition, because I'm kind of glad he's there to help them, but I'm also puzzled as to how well he can get along with people that I think would really be the Lloyd-Jones types. I mean, one of the reasons they, they, that Lloyd-Jones could do what he did is that he had his own little home base, and he didn't have to get along with anybody else except his own yeah. elders, right? He's got Westminster Chapel in London. It's well-funded, and, you know, he can tell everybody else to go hang. Stott is an, is an Anglican. He's got to get along with his bishop. He's got to get along with other Anglicans. And Stott enjoyed networking, so he enjoys being involved with the University Fellowship in Britain and around yeah, the world. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Lloyd-Jones would, would come along and, and speak to some of their chapters too, but Stott was really integrally involved with the expansion of the UCCF in, in Britain and elsewhere. Um, the, the Urbana conferences he would speak to and so on. So, oh, yeah. so Stott was very much the networking trans-denominational evangelical. And, and Lloyd-Jones instead was content to just work his little section of the vineyard. He, he did it well. But there was always the temptation for people like Lloyd-Jones and others um, to think that, yeah, the world was nicely divided between us and them. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's, a, that's a problem when some of the people that you are starting to think of as them are people like, John Stott. I mean, just this morning, I, I had to write on Facebook with somebody who was um, celebrating the ICBI conference, which I think has just come out. That's their anniversary for the International Conference of Biblical Inerrancy. And this one fellow decides to say, well, I'm not sure I can trust Jim Packer because he was pretty slippery on the dialogue with Roman Catholics. And I think that that's fundamentalism. That that's yeah. that 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 yeah. smells of the kind of if you're not entirely for us, then you're against us. Um, that's not the way Stott is, and that's not the way the evangelicals were. Um, Laura was Laura was jumping up and down there when you were talking about Tim Keller and <laughs> ordaining women. <laughs> yep, yep. I uh, grew up in the PCA where Tim Keller was our hero, so it's interesting to hear that. And I I was just looking. Um, because I remember reading one of your books about women in ministry, Partners in Christ, and that was deeply influential for me to begin to form a biblical basis of understanding, because for so long what I'd been taught was this is not biblical for women to lead. Um, and I thought, well, gosh, I, I feel like God has called me to lead. So either God's wrong or, you know, what I've been taught is wrong. So I need, I need to broader language around this. And that was one of the, one of the first books that really helped me 
look at the relevant scripture and understand that there are other ways to think about this um, and to be biblically faithful in the process. So I deeply appreciate that. We should get one of those copies in Tim Keller's hands. Well, you know, I think it's the kind of argument that that Tim Keller would probably enjoy because, yeah. it, it, as you know, one of the things I try to do in that book and in its 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 previous edition with a different title, Finally Feminist, is to look at it theologically. I mean, I think that right. the people like Scott and other New Testament scholars have have done the the lion's share of the work in in dealing with the texts. But uh, but ultimately, it's it's a theological, ethical issue, right? And the issue is, what, what about today? Not just what what did they think about women back then, but what do we think about women and men in the church today? That's a theological, ethical issue, which needs to be, I think, finally framed that way. And my little contribution is to try to pull together church history and theology with this excellent stuff that the biblical studies people have done and say, this is a coherent way of understanding, for instance, why we think that in this culture, women should be preachers and pastors. And yet most Christians in most places and times didn't think so. Are are we just smarter and more spiritual than they are? Well, that's the odious implication of some of my more enthusiastic biblical feminists to say, well, yeah, actually, mm-hmm. we are. I don't think that's true. I don't think um, God was holding back light to break forth from his holy word until you got a proper PhD in, in New Testament backgrounds. <laughs> I think instead it's, it's, and this is where I, I, I'm an evangelical. I think it's the Holy Spirit pragmatism. I think the Holy Spirit really yeah. wants to get the gospel out and he's smart enough to pick his battles. And so just mm-hmm. as missionaries today in Muslim-majority countries will have women sit in the backseat of the car or walk behind their husbands or wear a niqab because those are prices they're willing to pay to keep the gospel going, um, yeah. so I think the church was actually called to subordinate women until we didn't have to anymore. And now that we don't have to, we really shouldn't. Um, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a different kind of argument, and and it's one I hope that Mr. Keller would would enjoy reading. Yeah, well, and I think you make yeah. I think you make the case in the book as well that now it's almost countercultural it to prevent women from stepping yeah, into it their is. gifts. Now it's yeah. the scandal yeah. the other way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I've read both of them, John. Bless you. And and I think it illustrates um, as we wind down here for in a few minutes um, your interest in apologetics. Mm-hmm. And why we can believe, because it seems to me, apologetically, holding back on women like this degrades the gospel in our culture. And if you're right that evangelicalism is pragmatic, and I think you're totally right on this, uh, Tim Weber, I mean, not Tim Weber, uh, Robert Weber made this big point about uh, Willow Creek stuff. It was pragma- pragmatic evangelicalism. Um, you know what? What do you have to say today to to us in the world of apologetics? And I know you've written about this quite a bit, and you have a new book. Uh, why? Why can I believe? Can I believe? Uh, can I, yeah. yeah. Can, can I, believe? I believe? Yeah. And um, I think uh, you know. I'd I'd love for you to say a few things about that for our for our audience. Well, I think that Christianity is about a way of life in relationship to a personal God. It, it really isn't just a, a, a more correct understanding of metaphysics, or, or, or it isn't just a, a superior morality. It isn't just a, a refined aesthetic. Uh, ultimately, Christianity is simply following Jesus 
back to God and forward to the world to come. So what I want to try to help my fellow Canadians and Americans and other English-speaking readers understand is this is a clever plan by the supreme being. He actually knows what he's doing, and, and he knows <laughs> what we need, and he knows in what order we should receive it. He puts first things first. He heals what needs to be healed in order to heal the next sorts of things, in order to heal the next sorts of things. So, so God really does know what God's doing if we understand Christianity clearly. Now, the, the sociologist historian side of me looks at the poll data and says most North Americans think they understand Christianity and they demonstrably don't. And this is a real problem for the Christian message. When, you, when your market thinks they know what you're selling and they don't want it, but what they think you're offering is not what you're selling and they're rejecting something you're not even trying to give them. So we have a massive public relations problem in Canada and the U.S. that's not paralleled in any other religion. Most of our fellow citizens think they understand what we're selling. They don't want it. Well, I don't want it either. <laughs> so we've got to try to find good ways of getting out the, the, the true message of the gospel. And I think part of what, you, what you've done, Scott, is, is to encourage us to have strong churches. I think that's exactly the New Testament priority. I, I, I'm speaking about this myself in my own little Anglican church here in Moncton. We need what I call thick churches. And you said we need good churches because this is where you can come and see what it means to walk in the mm -hmm. spirit back to God and toward the world to come. And this is what we offer that no one else is offering. And, and this is what we have to say much better than we've been saying. Well, John, you got to tell the story about uh, that you told. Can, can you tell it without weeping? The the little the story about the guy eating, homeless guy, wasn't it? Mm. That you wrote on mm. your. Mm. You mean on my blog recently? Yeah. Oh no. yeah. Well, there there was a a fellow came right into our church service in our in our small Anglican, beautiful little little old uh, church building downtown Moncton here in Eastern Canada. And uh, he, he walks down the center aisle as the organ's playing just before the church service starts and he's smoking and he, and he blows this plume of smoke in the air and he sits right down in the front row as if he's the king visiting, you know, one of his, one of his parish churches or something. And, and, and the clergy process in and then they, they, they just walk right by this guy and suddenly say, okay, this, this is not working well. And as they get up onto, into the choir, he decides to stand up and join them up there. <laughs> And our, uh, our, our, our chief pastor, Chris, um, he, he's uh, greatly gifted in pastoral care, and he works with our, our community friends a lot. He's also a, uh, a reserve chaplain with the Canadian Armed Forces. He's done a couple of tours in the sandbox. So he, he's, he's a guy who knows the way the world is. And he just got behind this, beside this fellow. One of, the, one of the nervous elders comes running up, and Chris just says, call 911 in a level voice, as if he just said, you know, go get me a glass of water, call 911. And stays with this chap, and just Chris just keeps calling out hymn numbers. Let's sing hymn number one, hymn number two, hymn number three, hymn number four. And by the time we get to hymn number five, uh, the Maoris have shown up, uh, a woman and a man, and they very gently talk to this fellow. They lead him off the side while we're singing hymn number five. And and as I'm thinking, boy, this guy really was disruptive, but it's nice that nobody's being too brutal. The last thing I hear, as because I'm sitting toward the front, is Chris saying to this fellow and the Mounties, we have breakfast here for our friends tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. What he doesn't say 
is never come back into my church and disturb our little holy time again. What he says yeah. is, you come back. You come mm. back tomorrow. We'll give you a shower. We got clothes here. We got breakfast. And I thought, yeah. this, this is what it means for Jesus to show up in church. And, yeah. and this is what it means, I think, for church to be tov. I think it does. And so I was very glad for your emphases. Mm. And I was glad to see them lived out right in front of me. Yeah. Mm. But that, but John, this, this, this is the apologetic that Christianity can offer. And um, Charles Marsh talks about lived theology. And I'm kind of keen on this expression, and I don't think I totally go where he goes on all, all of it. But I really think that the best apologetic for Christianity is a life well lived in accordance with Jesus and following him. So, well, I think you're in good company. I mean, wasn't it our friend Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if we yeah. had churches fully alive, there's the glory of God. You want to see where the Shekhinah is? You want to see where the glory of God rests today? It's in a local church that is worshiping mm. and, and fellowshipping well and sharing well and serving well. That's where it is. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. Thank you so much, John, for your reminder. I think it's it's helpful to be reminded of the beautiful parts of evangelicalism um, and to remember that the focus is on Jesus. And I think that's what I heard you say about Gordon Fee is that he kept that front and center. Yeah. So I appreciate all of that. Well, thank you all for being with us. We look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much. <laughs>